Pushkin. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase and a member FDIC 2024 J.P. Morgan Chase and Co. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. From Pushkin Industries, this is Deep Background, the show where we explore the stories behind the stories in the news. I'm Noah Feldman. The CDC, also known as the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, has been emphasizing that a strategy called contact tracing is going to be essential to reopening the country. Here's Robert Redfield, the head of the CDC, speaking at a White House press conference earlier this month. We're going to be very aggressively focused on early case recognition, isolation, and contact tracing. Contact tracing is the process of identifying people who've come into contact with an infected person and alerting them so that they can get tested and isolate themselves to slow the spread of the disease. This is a job that has traditionally been done by public health workers, but in several countries around the world, including Singapore, South Korea, much contact tracing was done digitally with the help of apps that people downloaded onto their phones. To learn more about contact tracing, how it works, what it's good for, and what the challenges are facing contact tracing, we're joined by Dr. Louise Ivers. She's the executive director of the Massachusetts General Center for Global Health at the Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston. She's a doctor who specializes in infectious disease and in outbreaks, and she's been thinking very deeply about that question. Louise, thank you for being here. I wonder if you could start by just explaining to us contact tracing 101. What is it? And then we'll move to what's it for? So contact tracing is basically identifying and then isolating people who have been exposed to an infectious disease. And the idea is that by isolating those people who've been exposed, you can interrupt the chains of transmission. And in good quality contact tracing, explain to me what the mechanics are. First, we discover that person X, call him Noah, has been exposed to the virus and is infectious. Then what happens? 
So the first step is identifying what we call an index case. So an index case is a person who is confirmed to have the illness in this situation, COVID-19. So let's say you have a positive COVID-19 test, then that triggers a notification to the public health authorities. So then what they do is call you up and uh, speak with you and try to motivationally interview you to remember where you've been, who you've been in contact with. For COVID-19, we think especially about being with someone within about six feet of distance physically for about 10 or 15 minutes or more. And we make a list of all your contacts and then we set about communicating with those people who are contacts and giving them particular pieces of advice. You might offer contacts a test. You certainly want to know if any contact is already having symptoms because they might actually become a case then. If you have symptoms and a positive test, you become a case. Uh, You definitely want those folks to quarantine. And, you know, many people are not in a position to easily self-isolate. So many people talk about supported isolation or supported quarantine, you know, where you investigate in speaking with the contact, what their barriers are to being able to stay home for two weeks. So that's kind of the process. And why does that not very quickly spiral to enormous numbers? I mean, I can understand that under social distancing, it might not spiral that much because I'm not sure I've actually been in contact that much with anybody except for my kids. But if I had been out and about, because there wasn't social distancing, there would presumably be many people And then that would lead to many other people and the tree would grow very, very rapidly. So how is this doable in a non-socially distanced environment? I mean, you just perfectly described the pandemic, (laughs) you know, because of because that's exactly why there's exponential spread is because every person uh, potentially infects other people. So you're totally right. Contact tracing is a big task. It quickly becomes very many people And you are essentially trying to chase ahead of the speed of the virus and at least take out of circulation enough people so that they don't go on to contribute to that exponential spread. So it is a very, very big task. It is certainly normally in public health what we try to do at the beginning of epidemics. And so there's certainly debate at the moment in Massachusetts, say, about how helpful it is to be trying to do contact tracing. I do think that the human capacity to do it gets quickly, you know, stretched. If we had over 2,000 positive cases and new positive cases in Massachusetts yesterday and the same amount the day before, you quickly get into the number of contacts. It's very, very many. And this is why I personally became interested in the idea that technology should be able to somehow help us uh, in trying to deal with this huge task. In a place like Massachusetts is a good example where we both are, where there's already what you epidemiologists call community spread. What would the scale of contact tracing have to be actually to use it to beat the virus down? Has that ever been done? I mean, obviously contact tracing has been used successfully as it was in South Korea to help control the virus when only a few people have it. But are there any examples in the world of where contact tracing has been used to knock back community spread? I think you could look at um, Ebola virus disease as a example of a very frightening illness with a much higher mortality rate than we're seeing for COVID-19, where 
contact tracing has essentially been a major contributor to ending the outbreak, certainly in the 2014-2015 outbreak in West Africa before there was a um, Ebola vaccine. They're very different diseases, so I'm not trying to say that they are transmitted the same way. But the question for COVID-19 is, if we don't try to contain the virus, what is our alternative? We don't have a treatment. We don't have a prevention, a vaccine. I think from the perspective of public health folks, if we don't try to do contact tracing, we're just kind of sitting back to say, well, it, you know, it escaped and there's nothing we can do. We just have to wait. So I think when you look at the numbers in the United States and certainly Massachusetts, it does seem overwhelming. But basically the two features around contact tracing that are important are you have to be fast because you need to identify the contacts and put them in isolation quickly. And then you have to have good quality testing. So if you have an accurate test that's widespread and you have contact tracing that's fast, then you could be successful. You know, Massachusetts just hired or is in the process of hiring a thousand people to work on contact tracing. And I think that's a big start. I think even if we don't really believe that it's possible right now at the peak of our epidemics, we definitely need to have contact tracing set up and established and robust for when we do all start coming back into circulation and moving around, when we get to the bottom of our plateau, because we're going to have other waves of illness and we need to be able to blunt those much more aggressively than we did with this first wave. If you have a thousand contact tracers up and doing their jobs at their phones and you have 2000 cases in a day, does that ratio work? I mean, how long does it take one contact tracer to trace all of the contacts of a person? So I think the first job is really the case investigation. So they speak to the case. I've spoken with some people who are working on this now, and they say that first call can be 40 minutes, 45 minutes. Speaking to contacts can be shorter. Some contacts don't answer the phone. Some contacts immediately say, okay, no problem. Others may take a little more time. Others may be in difficulties. You know, they're worried about their job. They need to be referred to social services. It's not a fast task. So that I grant you, it is not fast. And how does one find people whose phone numbers one doesn't know or whose name is one doesn't know? Do you just have to sort of give up on that person or you try to use some reasonable detective efforts to find them? Yeah, I think, you know, again, contact tracing historically is a pretty nuanced activity. And um, the people who are trained to do it in normal public health circumstances are like investigators. They're like disease detectives. They try to understand what's going on. They try to um, look at how many contacts became sick. And so if many of the contacts became sick, you might need to do a deeper investigation. It's, it's nuanced. And we are in the middle of this massive crisis in some ways, you know, trying to adapt what's a thoughtful and specialized and very human interaction into perhaps something that can happen faster. But yes, one may not know all of the people that you were in contact with. If you took a bus or a commuter rail you may have been in the same car as someone for 20 minutes, but you don't know who they are. So there are certainly weaknesses in the capacity at this level of um, scale to do it. If we look at, say, South Korea, who had a very successful containment effort, 
they used many components to their contact tracing activities. They looked at closed circuit television. They looked at credit card transactions. They, you know, had a lot of components to their contact tracing and they had large numbers of people doing it. So I think on principle, it's clear that it works. And I think the question that you're coming back to me with is really, is this feasible at the scale that we're at? And my response to that is we have to make it feasible because in the absence of a vaccine, in the absence of a treatment, if we don't try to expand our contact tracing, I don't really see other solutions for us for the outbreak. We'll be back in just a moment. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. Hello, hello. Malcolm Gladwell here from Revisionist History, my podcast about the overlooked and the misunderstood. A couple of years ago, I wrote a book called Outliers. It was about exceptional people, the ones who operate at the outer edges of human performance. Outliers fascinate me. And last year, I discovered an outlier in the form of a community organization, Washington State's City of Bellevue. The city wanted to improve public safety by making their roads safer. So they created something that no one had ever built before, a platform that gave road users warnings of any dangers ahead in real time. How did they build it? By using a combination of technologies, the cellular vehicle to everything network, T-Mobile's 5G network, and 5G-connected cameras. People driving, bicycling, walking, running, can't forget people running, and people operating the transportation network now had a way to prevent crashes. It's been a huge success. The city of Bellevue earned first place in the community category at the T-Mobile for Business Unconventional Awards, an event that celebrates T-Mobile customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of meaningful change. If you're a T-Mobile for Business customer and your team has, like the city of Bellevue, innovated something really, really cool, I encourage you to enter. It's also a great way for outliers to be recognized in front of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry, and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? 
it's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com strategic. That's oracle.com strategic. oracle.com strategic. You mentioned the obvious appeal of so-called digital contact tracing or automated, depending on what terminology you, you like better, as opposed to the manual or what I would call the human form. And South Korea has gotten attention for what it's done. Israel has also gotten attention, positive and negative, for the fact that its internal intelligence services just told everybody one day, by the way, we've been tracking where you all are on your GPS phone data this entire time, and now we're going to put that to COVID. I actually know somebody who, as far as she knows, she was just in her house and she got a text message from the internal security services in Israel saying, you've been close to somebody who has the virus. And, you know, she tried to reach some human being to say, no, I wasn't. You know, maybe someone stood outside my house and smoked a cigarette, but she wasn't able to reach anybody. So she self-isolated. So that's a very immediately intrusive form of this. My questions about this are really fall into two categories. One is, can it work? That's question one. And then question two will be, can it be ethical? So I think we see that it can work because it has worked. So it worked in South Korea. Some component of it worked in Wuhan. And actually, from a public health perspective, if we could identify every case and identify every person who'd been in contact with that case and isolate them, we would be able to stop transmission. So theoretically, it can work. And in practice, we've seen places being able to implement it, especially at the beginning of their outbreaks. So I do think it's feasible. The question is, in terms of technology, what can work? Bluetooth, I'm learning a lot about. It's very interesting because our phones, if they have Bluetooth in it, are emitting Bluetooth signals all the time. And the idea that your phone itself could identify other phones that you have been around and hold that information for some period of time and then notify you if and only if another phone gets flagged as being infected, it's an interesting opportunity to use a piece of technology that already exists that many of us already have. So I think the idea of using Bluetooth proximity to try to help discover contacts is a very interesting and intriguing idea. And I think we have to figure out uh, how it can be used, how accurate it is, how many false alarms it might give, how well it is at picking up whether you've been within six feet or if that's an error, if it can tell if there's a wall between your six feet. Like there are many questions about it, but I do think it's intriguing and it's very laborious to do all the manual tracing yourself. So I think technology should be able to help us. Here's what seems to me to be the biggest challenge there. In order to do the human contact tracing, the manual contact tracing, 
you said what triggers the whole thing is that the public health authorities are informed that someone has had a positive test. And the people who are doing the contact tracing are indirectly working for the government. And if you're going to connect up the digital data to actual human tracing in order to give people the support and advice that you need, at some point you're going to have to connect the digital data that's been gathered to the real human being who is connected to the government. And I imagine there are some barriers we could put there to maybe keep certain aspects of the data from the government. But I think for the ordinary person, they're going to think, well, look, if my phone tells somebody, everyone I've seen, and what that means where I've been, then effectively the government is going to know that. How does one begin to think about making people feel safe and secure under those circumstances? In the normal process, COVID-19 is a notifiable illness. Therefore, anyone who runs a test, a laboratory who runs the test, they must notify the public health authorities of a positive result. So already there is a kind of trust given to the state about a medical condition. I think many people don't realize that that exists already. There are notifiable diseases. They've always been notifiable diseases that the public health authorities are told about. With your name, not just that there is a case. Yes, with your Noah name. Noah Feldman has, has this case. Noah yeah. Feldman has this problem. Mm-hmm. And that is what normally triggers case investigators and contact tracers Mm -hmm. for other illnesses, although, of course, they're much more slow-moving in general, so it happens at a much smaller volume, so no one has really heard of contact tracing before. So if in a perfect, I'm calling it a human system, but of course, the people who do this for a living keep reminding me, like, we use software. It's not an unaided human process. Exactly. But if you had a perfect process, there would be this huge notebook or database that already did have all your contacts and all your information. And we already allow that to happen in the public interest because of notifiable infections. The interesting thing is that the human ability to do that is flawed. And so that massive database is not really there. And also... In Massachusetts, for example, there are 351 boards of health. Those are municipal boards of health, essentially, county and municipal authorities. exactly. And so there's some decentralization of the process. There's some kind of enactment of local authorities to do things. So there's not one massive big data set of where everyone has been and who they've been in contact with. But in theory, there could be. And yet, when we propose to do that through technology... It does increase, I think, both the power of that creation of a data set, which makes us concerned, rightly so. And I think it also would potentially increase the scale of the data that's available and it would congregate it in a single place, potentially. And it makes people concerned, understandably, about having a data set that others could access or use. So two people who I've been listening very carefully to and learning a lot from in the discussion about digital tools, especially Bluetooth tools, have been uh, Professor Ron Rivest and Danny Weissner, both at MIT. Ron actually created this group, which created a protocol, a Bluetooth proximity protocol called PACT, that would ostensibly always have the information remaining on the phone and really only allow 
anonymized information into a centralized cloud. What Apple and Google have proposed to do with their operating systems on iPhones and Androids to, as far as I can see, is following the recommendations that are in the PACT protocol that Ron has led, and that will maintain a degree of privacy for individuals that seems robust. Technological solutions, I'm sure, are part of the answer here, but there will also have to be a policy component to it as well, especially if we need to ultimately connect the data on people's phones about their contacts to human tracing. The state will have to make a policy decision about that in in light of the full set of public values and public norms and constitutional rules. And that's going to be a tricky moment. Yeah. No single component of addressing the pandemic will work on its own. It just won't. Outbreaks are complex social phenomena as well as scientific events. So we have to have a comprehensive, integrated approach that acknowledges that humans don't make rational choices, (laughs) that the virus is brand new and we're still learning about it, that we have to test more, that we have to connect testing to contact tracing, that some people can't self-isolate without support, that some people are particularly vulnerable both to being infected and to the solutions we're proposing here, like the contact tracing, and that we have to have a smart approach that can take care of the most vulnerable people, take care of sick people, help other people from getting infected, and allow us to start going back into society again. No one thing is a silver bullet, and it really requires strong leadership that has good scientific understanding and that embraces the social component of disease as well as just the medical component of disease. Sometimes when I'm listening to the debates about should we quote unquote reopen things, it starts with some people saying no, too dangerous. Other people saying we must do it. And then comes uh, a sort of reasonable voice saying, well, we can reopen once we have sufficient testing and sufficient contact tracing and supported isolation. And in a kind of Goldilocks way, that seems to be, you know, the reasonable middle answer. One takeaway for me of our conversation is that it actually may not be that simple and that the presence of robust testing and robust contact tracing where there's community spread doesn't guarantee successful control of the epidemic. Am I hearing you correctly in that regard? I think, you know, so I'm an infectious diseases doctor at Mass General Hospital in Boston. And as a doctor in the hospital, it's been really terrifying over the last few weeks to see our cases going up and up and up. So I think that some of the hesitancies about reopening, so to speak, are that we fear that reopening in a trickle wouldn't really work and that we would quickly become overwhelmed. And I think the tentativeness over the medical side's capacity to care for sick people is really understandably a large part of the hesitancy in terms of opening up. I do think if we have really widespread testing, but we have to scale up testing really a lot, a lot more than we're doing. And if we have robust contact tracing in place, 
we could start reopening. The fear is that that brings us into a certain amount of uncertainty and none of us like uncertainty. We're really fearful that our hospitals will be overwhelmed and that people will die unnecessarily. And that's a scary thought. But at some point, you know, my opinion is that we have to make a plan. I, I think I think the biggest challenge right now is that I don't really see the plan. I haven't seen the plan. Have you have you seen the plan? What's no. the plan? Uh, you know, if and if uh, you haven't seen it and I haven't seen it, there is no plan. I mean, I think yeah, there's a lot of magical thinking. There's a lot of thought about well, maybe we could hold out until there's a vaccine, but there may not be a vaccine. There's a lot of thought of we have to hold out until the therapies get much better, but we don't have any guarantee that the therapies will work. And then the fallback is when people say herd immunity in some generic sense, as though they knew exactly what that meant. And that's obviously a scenario in which it would be very difficult to avoid overwhelming the hospitals. So I agree with you. So I have in my global health career spent a lot of time responding to outbreaks, you know, none like this, but in disaster settings, you know, you have to move quickly and make decisions in the context of uncertainty. You know, in the U.S., we are not as used to doing that because we have always really got the resources to do the modeling and get the science and wait until it's perfect. And I think we have to move ahead with making decisions that are imperfect using the best data that we have, but we do have to use the data that we have. I mean, we have to move forward. So, you know, technology and other ideas, they may seem ambitious. Contact tracing might seem, oh, it's not feasible, it's too many, but the way to be successful is just to take like the next step forward and believe it's possible and keep building it as you're doing it. I think that's what we have to think about or else, you know, we're just going to be stuck. Thank you so much. This is tremendously clarifying and there are bits of it that are inspiring and make one think there is a way forward. And then there are bits of it that cause one to feel a, a bit more panic. <laughs> and I really appreciate your honesty about it. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Here on Deep Background, we've spoken to several guests who focused on the mechanisms that we can use gradually to emerge from the conditions of social isolation that we're presently in. Testing has been a consistent theme that we've heard about again and again and again, more and better testing. Speaking to Dr. Ivers makes it clear that the testing is primarily valuable, however, to the extent that it is then used to lead to contact tracing. And the idea is that contact tracing itself can help manage the disease. This may be the only long-run strategy that can be used in the absence of a vaccine and in the absence of better therapies. But contact tracing on its own is not a magic bullet. You have to reach enough people, and that's a challenge. It's also very difficult to make contact tracing work in a scenario where, as we have, the disease has spread into the entire community, and we're not just tracking down a handful of names. Contact tracing is going to be central to our public discussion in the weeks and months ahead. Its successes, its limitations, and the challenges that it faces. We will keep a close eye on this subject going forward and come back to you with more about contact tracing as this story develops. Until I speak to you next time, be careful, be safe, and be well. Deep Background is brought to you by Pushkin Industries. 
Our producer is Lydia Jean Cott, with research help from Zoe Nguyen. Mastering is by Jason Gambrell and Martin Gonzalez. Our showrunner is Sophie McKibben. Our theme music is composed by Luis Guerra. Special thanks to the Pushkin Brass, Malcolm Gladwell, Jacob Weisberg, and Mia Lobel. I'm Noah Feldman. I also write a regular column for Bloomberg Opinion, which you can find at bloomberg.com Feldman. To discover Bloomberg's original slate of podcasts, go to bloomberg.com podcasts. You can follow me on Twitter at Noah R. Feldman. This is Deep Background. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there.